0: Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, February 16th through Saturday the 18th feature guest conductor Klaus Makula and a program of Sibelius, the Swan of Tuonela, one of the four legends from the Kalevala. I Know, a work by Lopez Beido, and after intermission, Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 5. Here are Philip Usher's program notes on Jimmy López Bellido's Aino, a tone poem for orchestra lasting about 13 minutes, and these are the first performances in the United States. Chicagoans know Jimmy Lopez Pellido, the Peruvian-born American, as the composer of Bel Canto, the opera based on Anne Patchett's best-selling novel, inspired by the Peruvian hostage crisis of 1996-97, which had its highly acclaimed world premiere at Lyric Opera of Chicago in 2015. As his career has continued to soar, López Bellido has often been closely identified with the culture of his background. Among his most frequently played scores are Peru Negro of 2012, inspired by Afro-Peruvian music, and Fiesta, written for the centennial of the Lima Philharmonic Society in 2007 and performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra the following year. But there's also an important Finnish thread in his complex musical DNA. After his studies with Enrique Itoriaga at the National Conservatory in Lima, he worked with Veli Matti Pumala and Eero Hamaniemi at the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki, where he earned a master's degree in music. He has since completed a PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's a member of the Suomen Savitalia, the Society of Finnish Composers. Lopez Bido has written many works for orchestra over the past two decades, including A Symphonic Canvas, based on the music from Bel Canto, an oratorio, Dreamers, written in collaboration with the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Milo Cruz, the librettist of Bel Canto, the two minutes of A Wedding Blast, a variation of the famous Wedding March by Mendelssohn, and three substantial symphonies, with a fourth in the early planning stages. With his third symphony, Altered Landscape, from 2000, in 2020, López Pellido gives voice to his concern that, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we live in an altered world now, but the future has not yet been written, and which direction we take from now on is entirely up to us. Belcanto is at this point his only opera. Aino, a co-commission from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, is his most recent orchestral score. And here are words by Jimmy López Pellido himself on Aino. Aino contemplates the sea, exquisitely dressed and inconsolable. It's been three days since she left home, wandering through the woods. At dawn, her eyes still moist, she sees three beautiful maidens atop a headland bathing in the waters. Enthralled, Aino sheds her clothes and joins them, but as she reaches the summit, the rock begins to sink, taking her to the bottom of the sea, and thus silencing her sorrows. In pure tone poem tradition, Aino follows the story of the eponymous hapless maiden as told in the fourth poem of the Kalevala, Finland's national epic. But although Aino is the central character of this poem, she's certainly not the only one. There is Jokohainen, her brother who promises her hand to Vainamoinen in a desperate bid to save his own life. There's Vainamoinen, the grand and powerful suitor whose formidable powers can't prevent him from ultimately losing Aino. There's Aino Aino's mother, whose pain at losing her daughter prompts her to cry rivers of tears, which eventually give birth to waterfalls, mountains, and forests. And there's the hare, who among all animals is entrusted with the bitter task of relaying the news of Aino's passing. I first learned of the Kalevala through Sibelius's oeuvre, but it was not until I moved to Helsinki that I fully grasped the unique place it holds in Finland's sense of national identity. It therefore came as no surprise when conductor Klaus Makala brought up the story of Aino as a possible source of inspiration for this commission. This piece is first and foremost a gift to Klaus, to whom I am deeply grateful for taking my music with him wherever he goes, but it's also an homage to the country that welcomed me as a young student, and with which I still have very strong and loving ties. As soon as I read I Know's story, I was struck by its rich sound world, which, although not obvious at first, becomes clear as the poem progresses." The anguished sobs of Aino, the mesmerizing vision of the three maidens bathing, the rock sinking to the bottom of the sea, the hare running across the forest to relay the news, the mother wailing upon learning of her daughter's fate, and the waterfalls, golden mountains, and trees that emerge from her endless stream of tears, and finally the three cuckoos singing eerily atop three birch trees. All these elements offer a plethora of tantalizing sounds, all of which inspired and guided the way I orchestrated the piece. The Cuckoo Song, due to its universally known musical cadence, makes a prominent appearance at the climax across all instrumental sections and makes its presence felt all the way up until the end on glockenspiel. But I also chose to thread the Cuckoo Song into an earlier musical motif, my imagined Song of the Three Maidens, uttered as they first entice I know to join them and represented in the orchestra by two solo violins and a solo viola playing a haunting, whistle-like melody on high harmonics. Writing, I know, has been a wonderful journey into the world of the Tondichtung, or Tone Poem, and in many ways, it's a departure from other relentless and rhythmically driven works of mine. Here, instead of trying to tell the story by imposing my point of view, I chose to quiet myself and listen to what the story had to tell me. It seemed all but fitting, given that it was in Finland that I learned the art of listening, and that silence can be just as powerful as a thunderous orchestral tutti. This work was commissioned by Orchestre de Paris, the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra, and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and it is dedicated to the wondrous Klaus Makula, whose young age belies his timeless wisdom and deeply profound understanding of music. Words by Jimmy Lopez Baedo himself and program notes by Philip Pusher on Baedo's Ainó. And now, on to Gustav Mahler's Symphony No. 5, work lasting about 72 minutes. The lone trumpet call that opens this symphony launches a whole new chapter in Mahler's music. Gone is the picturesque world of the first four symphonies, music inspired by folk tales and song, music that calls on the human voice and is explained by the written word. With the fifth symphony, as Bruno Walter put it, Mahler is now aiming to write music as a musician— Walter had nothing against the earlier works, in fact he was one of the first serious musicians to understand and to conduct these pieces long before it was fashionable to champion the composer's cause. Walter simply identified what other writers since have re-emphasized, the unforeseen switch to an exclusively instrumental symphonic style producing music in symphonies five through seven that needs no programmatic discussion. In fact, the break in Mahler's compositional style is neither as clean nor as radical as we might at first think. The trumpet call that opens this symphony is a quotation from the climax of the first movement of the fourth symphony, a direct link, in other words, with the world Mahler has left behind. And Mahler has hardly given up song for symphony. In fact, the new focus on purely instrumental symphonies seems to have freed Mahler to produce at the same time an extraordinary outpouring of songs, including most of his finest. And although they are not sung or even directly quoted in symphonies 5 through 7, their presence and their immense importance to Mahler is continually felt. The great lumbering march that strides across the first movement of the symphony, for example, shares much in spirit, contour, and even detail with the first of the leader and the last of his Des Knaben Wunderhorn settings, Der Tamborgsel, The Drummer Boy, both written while the symphony was also taking shape. Mahler was a summer composer, as he put it, compressing a year's pent-up musical work into one holiday he enjoyed as a professional conductor. His life during the summer months, his wife Alma later recalled, was stripped of all dross, almost inhuman in its purity. He wrote night and day, and several projects took shape in his head at once. In June of 1901, he settled in a villa at Meiernich on the Wörthersee, where, before the summer was over, he wrote four of the Rückert songs, three of the Kentertoten lieder, also to text by Rückert, and Der Tamburgsaal, and drafted two movements of his Fifth Symphony. Each piece, dating from the same time, shares something with the others, the kind of cross-referencing that is at the heart of Mahler's working method. Although Mahler left no scenario to follow for this symphony, no outward sign that this is explicit programmatic music, it is so obviously dramatic music. For Donald Mitchell, perhaps the most important Mahler scholar writing today, the Fifth Symphony initiates a new concept of an interior drama. The idea of a programmatic symphony has not vanished, quote, it has gone underground rather, or inside. Mahler has even left us a few clues, not dictating what the music should mean to us, but suggesting what it meant to him. The central scherzo is a human being in the full light of day in the prime of his life, and the famous adageto is, if we believe Wilhelm Engelberg's assertion, Gustav Mahler's declaration of his love for Alma, presented to his wife without a word of explanation. As in the later Seventh Symphony and the projected Tenth, the Fifth Symphony is divided into five movements, but more important are the numbers defining three basic parts, with the weighty scherzo standing alone in the middle. Part one views life as tragedy, moving from the bleak funeral march of the first movement to the deflated climax of the second. The third part approaches and ultimately achieves triumph. Part two, the lively scherzo, is the hinge upon which the music shifts. The first movement caused Mahler considerable trouble. He continued to retouch the orchestration until 1907, three years after the first performance, and as late as 1911, the last year of his life, he said, I cannot understand how I could have written so much like a beginner. Clearly, the routine I had acquired in the first four symphonies had deserted me altogether, as though a totally new message demanded a new technique. Mahler had written funeral marches before. The first three symphonies all include them. But this is a new kind of funeral music tough as nails, lean, scrubbed clean of simple pictorial touches. It is a much more concise movement than the tremendous march that opens the Resurrection Symphony. Here the march gives way to a defiant trio, a terrible outburst of grief. Then the cortege returns, followed by the trio, now dragged down to the march's slow, lumbering pace. Near the end, there is a new idea full of yearning, a rising minor ninth falling to the octave that will find fulfillment in the second movement, just as that movement will echo things already developed here. The trumpet calls the first movement to a close in utter desolation. The second movement is both a companion to and a commentary on the first. It is predominantly angry and savage music with periodic lapses into the quieter, despairing music we have left behind. There is one jarring moment so characteristic of Mahler when all the grief and anger spills over into sheer giddiness, a momentary indiscretion like laughter at the graveside. The music quickly regains its composure, but seems even more disturbed. Near the end, the trumpets and trombones begin a noble brass chorale, brave and affirmative. For a moment, it soars, and then, suddenly, almost inexplicably, it loses steam, falters, and falls flat. It is one of Mahler's cruelest jokes. The great central scherzo caused problems at the first rehearsal. From Cologne, Mahler wrote to Alma, The scherzo is the very devil of a movement. I see it is in for a peck of troubles. Conductors, for the next fifty years, will all take it too fast and make nonsense of it. And the public, oh heavens, what are they to make of this chaos of which new worlds are forever being engendered? It's hard to know just how fast Mahler felt this music should go. It is marked vigorously, not too fast. And today, his peculiar mixture of Landler, a nice country dance, and waltz, more upscale, seems neither chaotic nor nonsensical, although it is still provocative. The whole is an abelian dance of life with moments of simple nostalgia and when the horns seem to call across mountain valleys, an almost childlike wonder. The much-loved Adagietto is really the introduction to the finale, incomplete on its own, not so much musically as psychologically. Ironically, for many years, this was one of the few Mahler excerpts ever played at concerts. It was later borrowed carelessly as movie music for Death in Venice, and won still more new converts. Here, Mahler finds a fresh kind of lyricism which he gives not to the winds, which so often sang in the earlier symphonies, but to the strings alone over the gentle, hesitant, almost improvisatory strumming of the harp. This must have been very persuasive to audiences not yet ready for Mahler's tougher, more complex movements. But it is by no means simple music, and although there are fewer notes on the page than usual, Mahler is no less precise in demanding how they should be played. The first three notes of the melody, for example, are marked pianissimo, molto ritardando, espressivo, and crescendo. And if this is a song without words, it is intimately related to perhaps the greatest of all Mahler songs, the Rückert setting, Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen, I am lost to the world, written that same summer. A single note from the horn, so fresh and unexpected, with the sound of strings still in our ears, calls us back to earth. The finale begins at once, with the suggestion of one of the Wunderhorn melodies, and then changes direction. This is radiant music, so infectious that part of the adagietto even turns up virtually unrecognizable in these up-tempo surroundings. Mahler's fifth is his Eroica, moving from tragedy to triumph, and his triumph could not be more sweeping. Ultimately, the same brass chorale that fell to defeat in the second movement enters and carries the finale to a proper rollicking conclusion. Finally, a word about Mahler's choice of key. The Fifth Symphony begins in C sharp minor and ends five movements later in D major. Until Mahler's time, it was customary to begin and end in the same key or to finish in the relative major if the piece started in the minor. And some of Mahler's symphonies do that, but many do not. And this kind of progressive tonality, as it is often called, is an essential part of his musical language, an example of how he helped to stretch the boundaries and the meaning of tonality. In the Fifth Symphony, it underlines the inner drama of the music. The struggle to rise from C-sharp to D and from minor to major underlines the music's quest to rise from tragedy to victory. Program notes by Philip Husher on Mahler's Symphony No. 5. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.